Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. <laughs> Thompson, if you're listening, so many people are responding to you on SMS and Twitter. I'll read those SMSs after 10 so that you hear for yourself what people think about what you said. But right now, let's just move on. Dr. Chris Smith, The Naked Scientist. Good morning to you, Chris. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much. Well, I'm not threatened by robots becoming better than I am. So what are scientists doing? Uh, developing an algorithm to make robots look like we do? Yeah, well, one of the really important things about the future is that uh, we want to be using robots to do dangerous things that is, we don't want humans to do. The problem is that at the moment, our present way of programming robots means that when something goes wrong with them, they're completely incapacitated. Their programming breaks and they just grind to a halt. And this is no good if you've got a robot in a dangerous situation, like the middle of a forest fire or the middle of a minefield or even in outer space and you've spent a lot of money, energy, effort, and you're relying on it being there, and then it doesn't work very well, or it completely grinds to a halt, you're really in trouble. So what researchers at the University of Wyoming, this is Jeff Kloon and his colleagues, together with other researchers in France, have done, is that they have completely turned around the whole way we program robots and made them much more intelligent. And how they've done this is to, rather than design an algorithm or a program Mm -hmm. where when something goes wrong a robot could test all of the possibilities of things it could do in order to try to work out a way of regaining control of itself what their robots do is they have a simulated childhood effectively you have a virtual robot playing in a computer that works out how all the different parts of its body work and move then it stores that in a database when some part of it later goes wrong then it does experiments it basically chooses some ideas if you like of things it could try and those inform what ideas it chooses next and very very quickly it homes in on a solution based on that prior knowledge of what it knows its body can do to surmount the problem it's now faced with to give an example of how powerful this Mm -hmm. is the researchers decided let's just challenge this robot and uh, and slowly disable because they have a robot with six legs it looks a bit like a beetle let's just slowly disable progressively more legs to see what it does and they turn off one leg and it very quickly within a couple of minutes worked out how to work, still move very effectively they turn off two legs and so on uh, then they got to the point where they programmed it and said you're not allowed to have any of your feet touching the ground hmm. and they thought this would completely stump it and they were gobsmacked when it flipped over onto its back and then walked on its elbows across the floor and they said even they were impressed it came up with a creative solution that none of them had even thought of so actually we are now at the point where we're beginning to design computer programs that can very quickly outthink a human in terms of creativity hmm oh very fascinating we had an sms from a listener um and she she or he wanted to know if it's only the female mosquitoes that suck our blood then what do the males feed on (laughs) that is correct Mosquitoes, which are, of course, ranked as the most dangerous animal on Earth because they are the vector for malaria, plus a host of other diseases. And malaria affects something like 200 to 300 million people every year. And the death rate is maybe three quarters of a million, 70% of them kids. This is a major problem. 
the transmission is exclusively female mosquitoes. And the reason for this is that the female mosquitoes need a high-protein diet to lay eggs because eggs have a lot of protein in them. They get that high-protein diet during the breeding season by biting animals, including us, and when they bite us, they inject for free the malaria parasite. Male mosquitoes and female mosquitoes, when they're not breeding, have a penchant for fruit and sugars. So they will fly around and they will find sugar solutions in flowers and fruit, and they just drink the sugar solution and the uh, sugary water, and that sustains them. And it's only when the females are breeding that they become vampires and bloodsuckers. All right, let's go to Ian in Plumstead. Hi, Ian. Hello, morning to mm. you. Good morning. A uh, question for the naked scientist. I was just reading in the paper, according to the Bible, Abel was the world's first murder victim killed at the hands of his brother Cain. But now the archaeologists have discovered a skull dating from 450,000 years ago that shows distinct evidence of foul play. My question is, how, how do they determine that it's 430,000 years ago? I'll listen on the radio. Thank yes, you. Yes, that's a lovely question. And one which people often think, well, how on earth do we know how old things are? There's a whole range of different ways. They range from one end of the scale, modern technology, things like carbon dating. Carbon dating, just discovered by Willard Libby, and actually won in the Nobel Prize, relies on how much of a radioactive form of carbon there is in something relative to the form of non-radioactive carbon. And we know how fast the carbon breaks down. And so if we work out the ratio of the radioactive form to the non-radioactive form, when the thing went into the ground, it had a certain amount of radioactivity in it. When it comes out of the ground, the radioactivity has decayed away. You can therefore work out how old it is. That gets you back maybe 50,000, 60,000 years or so because of how long it takes radioactive carbon to break down. So what do you do beyond that? Well, then you can use other forms of radioactivity. There are other longer-lived radioisotopes that can be used. There are other techniques, including things like what they call stratigraphy. If you look at the way that the layers of material are in the Earth, as things get deposited and buried, then the, the more and more material accumulates on top. So what you can do is if you find a piece of bone, for example, you can say, well, what other bone is here or what other plant matter or whatever is here and how old is that matter? And then you can date by inference the thing that you're looking at because you know how old the stuff around it is. There are other techniques like you can look at um, evidence of uh, what else was around. If you know how, uh, how uh, old a certain species is on Earth, and then you find examples of that species in the context of, the, of something that you don't know what that is, you can then begin to say, ah, right, look, um, this which we know is around at this time is also around at the same time as this new specimen. Therefore, the new specimen must be X years old. So there's a whole range of ways that you can do this. Who came in first on 021-446-0567 or 1-883-0702? Oh, Kumbelo in Danefern. Good morning. Hi, Riddy. Hello. Hi, Dr. Chris. Yes. I uh, just want... I just wanted to find out. Uh, I grew up hearing about truth serum, and I just wanted to ask the, 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 the doctor how it works on the brain and how it determines truth from lies. You don't want to subject someone to it, do you? Is there something you want to find out? <laughs> <laughs> Have you been Just lied to? to? <laughs> I, I, I saw it on television. I didn't think it was real. But anyway, Dr. Chris, truth serum. Well, the, these truth serum don't really exist. There are some drugs that can be given to people which will make them a bit woozy. And in the same way that people may become garrulous and chatty and say things that maybe on the cold, sober light of day they regret. And alcohol is one example of, of sort of disinhibiting people in this way. There are some drugs that will do that. There are drugs including the date rape drug, which is uh, gamma-hydroxybutyric acid, which have a loose uh, sort of 
loosening effect on the brain and a disinhibiting effect and they can also render people partly incapacitated and therefore not able to control or judge their actions so carefully but there's not really any drug out there that you can inject it into somebody and it forces them to relinquish all of their secrets hmm. unfortunately fortunately i think chris <laughs> <laughs> maybe in your case what are you hiding really <laughs> lots of things <laughs> to find out the answer. <laughs> All right, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. The Naked Scientist is here. Let's satisfy our curiosity about the world in which we live. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 17 minutes to 10 o'clock on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your calls. Chris is with us. Let's go to Jay in Buertasek. Good morning to you, Jay. Good morning, Rudy. Hi there, Chris. When I've had this question in my mind for a long time, I've always kept my onions in the fridge, so I never, ever experienced burning eyes. But a, few, a little while ago, I read in a book that it's not, uh, you know, a good thing to do. It changes something within the onion, whether it's good or bad. I just wanted to clarify that and find out if, it, it, if it's true. Okay, putting good your morning. onions in the fridge. Uh, okay. I haven't come across any claims that... Keeping onions in the fridge is any worse than keeping onions just in a cupboard. At the end of the day, something, as soon as it is picked, starts to go off and become less fresh, and there will be a loss of quality. And that, uh, the only exception to that is if you pick unripe fruit, and you then ripen it in your fruit bowl, or with the help of the gas ethylene, which is the fruit ripening agent, bananas are particularly rich in, which is why if you put bananas and something else in the fruit bowl together, they can speed up the ripening of all the other fruit. But keeping things at a cooler temperature like in your fridge, should actually slow down the rate at which they go off, which is why we put them in the fridge, because it slows down chemical reactions and it slows down the growth of the microorganisms that contribute to the breakdown of things. So there shouldn't necessarily be, I would think, a detriment or deterioration in your onions. And I I would just chop them up and cook them because they taste fantastic. Okay, let's go. I must say, uh, Jay, I also put my onions in the fridge and I'm not, I haven't been immune to uh, the itchy eyes. Uh, it still has the same effect. Uh, so I wonder. Okay, thank you. Derek in Renpark Ridge, good morning. Derek in Renpark Ridge, good morning. Uh, hello. Yes. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'd like to ask the, the naked scientists People who live in different areas have different accents. What causes ah. people to have different accents? You have a village maybe 10, 15 kilometers away, and they've got a different accent, especially <laughs> in, in England and places like that. Yes, good morning, Derek. A very good question, um, he says, replying to your South African accent with <laughs> my English <laughs> The reason this happens is that the way we learn and the way that we pass on information and we learn to speak is by listening to other people. And in the dim and distant past, where communities were much more isolated and much less mobile than they are today, in other words, people often were born and died in the same village. They didn't have all this international travel or even national travel, and the concept of commuting to work was foreign to people. Mm. So this is prior to the advent, really, of motorized transport. That meant that you were copying, you were learning, you were basically aping the people around you, and that meant that any particular trait that was particularly characteristic or forceful in a community tended to get concentrated in that community. People all sounded the same because everyone strove to emulate because the way you get on and the way that we become a strong socially cohesive group is by actually becoming as alike each other as we can because that way we're empathising with each other more. We understand and we bond better. Now, 
obviously that's changed a little bit now because people are a lot more mobile than they were and we also have international communications and there's now people beginning to study what the effect of international communication and migration and that kind of thing is doing to the way people speak and there was a study done about 10 years ago now where people were recording the, occup the occupants or, or population of Glasgow in Scotland and they were looking at the way that they form some of their words and they have found that because of programs on television where the accents are quite different than their local regional accent, the nature of people's speech has changed subtly. And you can pick up very distinct but subtle changes in the way in which people form words. And they've done comparisons of older people who grew up in the, the pre-BBC era and people who are now totally immersed in common you know, BBC popular television and, and radio programmes, which is, tends to be dominated by certain ways of speaking. And they've been able to show this shift between the old and the young. And this, I think, probably adds a lot of, uh, I suppose, evidence and support for the notion that it's because people copied each other living locally, but uh, in a more dispersed community, those accents are becoming more blurred. Thank you very much, uh, Derek, for your question. I mean, yesterday we were just talking about the president and him laughing at people who were mispronouncing Kandla, and I said that he mustn't start that war uh, because obviously accent and uh, pronunciation is not a measure of anyone's intelligence, right? Let's go to John in Muli Point. Good morning. Good uh, morning, Lee. Morning, Chris. Um, I, my question is, if one does exercise, let's say for argument's sake you go for a run, is there any advantage of, from an exercise point of view, of doing it all in one. So let's say, for argument's sake, you run five kilometers. Um, is, it, is, it, is it the same value that you get if you run for, let's say, three kilometers and then have a break and then two kilometers? Or, for argument's sake, if you do 100 sit-ups, if you do 60 sit-ups and then have a... Ask Reedy, Reedy, what do you think? Because you're the marathon runner, yeah? Well, I, I've, I've heard from my personal trainer that interval training is, is very, very important and it is more effective. And I find that every time we work out, we break everything up in intervals and uh, she seems to believe that that is more effective. In fact, I see the other clients around us with their personal trainers, they're doing exactly the same thing. I'm not so sure, Chris, I'm running the Comrades Marathon on Sunday, 89 kilometers. I'm not so sure that that's good for anybody, quite frankly. I was to wonder myself i think that that you have to ask yourself why am i taking exercise mm. and if the answer to take exercise is because i need to become very very good at long distance endurance running without stopping to win the london marathon or something then obviously if you keep on mm. breaking up your training then you're not simulating what the race yes. is going to do to you and therefore the training is likely to be slightly less optimal than ultimately you're going to have to run the whole thing so you may as well train to do that but if you're exercising because you want to benefit your health and you want to have some fun, and you want to feel better for it, then you don't actually need to be... It doesn't need to be hell to actually be healthy, is the mm. saying, isn't it? Mm. And there's no reason why you can't do a bit of running and then stop, and do a bit of running and then stop, and do what is fun, because at the end of the day, if you enjoy it, you're more likely to do it more. And there's an, another very good feel-good factor that comes with exercise, the release of endorphins and that kind of warm glow of, ah, oh, I took some exercise and I feel much better for it. And that's likely to have a much longer-term benefit to your health and well-being, all of which add together to make you actually overall probably healthier than just very high-intensity exercise, which actually probably is deleterious to you. If, you. if you overdo it, you're actually damaging your body and any health benefit mm. that you are going to accrue from the exercise will be offset by any damage or injury you might sustain. Hmm. Okay. John, good luck to you. Let's go to Rainier in Pretoria. Hi. Hi, Chris. 
Okay, Chris, I'm, I'm asking a running-related question because I'm very anxious at the moment. It's a very long day. Uh, very long day it will be on Sunday. Are there times when sugar is good for you, is acceptable? Obviously, it's too late for me to try anything now, but a lot of runners would use, uh, whether it's Powerade or some gel, some sweet gels, uh, I can't remember what they're called, and they give you an immediate boost and, and, and so on. So are there times when, when sugar is good for you, or do you still do you eat normally when you're about to uh, undertake such a grueling race? Depends what you define as eating normally. If you're Thomas, then going and consuming the kinds of meals that Thomas consumes, and I've never seen anyone eat as much as that guy, then that's probably not very good marathon fodder. (laughs) The reason sugar is good is for the reasons I've outlined, Mm. in the sense that it's very, very rapidly absorbed into your body. Muscles can very quickly utilize sugar. It goes around in the bloodstream, muscles will draw glucose out of the bloodstream, straight into the muscle, and it goes straight into metabolism. You don't have to modify the energy in any form to shove it straight into the metabolic pathway in the muscle. Other things like proteins and things like fat have to go into a different part of the biochemical pathway and be modified first 
effectively they burn in the fire created by carbohydrate glucose in your muscles. Okay. So for that reason, sugar is very, very good to give you an instant surge. And if you are active and running and you're already sugar depleted because your muscles store a lot of energy, they store um, sugar in the form of glycogen, which is a polymer, lots of glucose molecules stuck together. And as you exercise, you break down this. It looks a bit like a giant snowflake inside your cells full mm. of lots of molecules of glucose stuck together. You break those down to release glucose units that you burn. But once you hit that wall, when you get very tired, and you think, oh, my muscles are getting really, really tired, often you've exhausted the supply of glucose in the muscle. So some sugar at that point, back into the bloodstream, pushes up the sugar in the muscles again, and gives you another lease of life. So under those circumstances, that's a little bit different than if you're trying to sit down in a sedentary way and concentrate in a classroom. Mm. Um, and, and so really it's horses for courses. You've got to match your energy demand with what you're doing in your activity and, and, and put the right sort of fuel in at the right time for the right sort of activity. All right. Thank you for that. I'll remember it. Beryl in Randburg. Hi. Hi, really. Mm. Uh, lovely to speak to you. First time calling. Um, I just wanted to ask Chris whether where uh, Daddy Long Legs come from, and are they spiders? Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Beryl. Mm. They're not spiders. These are insects, and they live amazingly underground. If you dig up in your garden, you sometimes find these big grubs. They look like a big maggot uh, in the roots of your plants, and that is a Daddy Long Legs. They actually spend most of their life as a larva, this maggot-like thing, crawling around in the ground, and they consume the roots of your plants, actually. They like some plants more than others. They come out as the mature fly. They, they pupate underground. They emerge as the mature daddy long legs, and there are some mummy long legs as well, of course. Uh, they fly around until they meet a daddy long legs, meets a mummy daddy long legs, and then uh, they do what comes naturally, and then the eggs go back into the ground, and then they subsequently hatch into more of these larvae and the life cycle goes on and it runs on an annual basis. So they emerge at the right time of year all together. And that's the amazing thing, that they all get their timing right. So they all come out together because the, the mature daddy long legs that you see flying around, they are only very short-lived. They're called crane flies under other names. Mm. Unless, unless you were referring to another kind of thing called a harvestman spider, but that's a bit different. Okay, thanks, I Karen. could be referring to that because this is something that lives... In the house, in little corners, it seems. Ah, well, that, that, there, there, is a, there is a harvestman spider, which is a kind of spider, and that's got very long legs. Um, yes. They're, they're very long-legged spider, and they also know, get known as vibrating spiders. Yes, uh, that's Because that when you disturb them, they, uh, they activate a whole series of very rapid movements with their legs, which makes their whole body sort of vibrate backwards and forwards. And they mm -hmm. do this because... If they are moving backwards and forwards over an area, A, they're much harder to catch, and B, they look much bigger to a predator. So the predator sees a big blob instead of a very small blob and thinks, ooh, that's a lot more threatening. I will stay yeah. away from that. So it's a defense mechanism. It confuses, it confuses predators. It makes them look bigger than they really are and makes them harder to catch. Thank you very much, Beryl. And Chris, have a lovely, lovely weekend. I'll see you again next week, Friday. All right. Happy running, Reedy. Oh, I'm not sure if happy applies, but thank you. I know what you mean. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's Dr. Chris Smith, our naked scientist. And uh, yeah, we are going to podcast this conversation. And good luck to everyone who's running. I, I, I must say I was inundated with emails from people who are running for charity and for a good cause. I'm sorry. I hope you understand. We can't schedule like 15 interviews or 12 interviews, all with different causes. It just, you know, it's too much information. 
donation and you end up not being successful raising funds for any one of those causes. But if you are going down to Durban and you are running for a good cause and you want to give us a call to tell us what your initiative is, it won't be an interview. It's you doing for just a few seconds, telling us what you're running for, uh, what you're raising money for. Is that fair? Okay. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.